Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you all for risking your lives to be here tonight. (laughs) I know that those two or three inches of snow can be very precarious, so please be careful on the drive home. We are also risking our lives by having to jump over this decoration every time we get up on stage, so it's, it's mutual. <laughs> How you guys doing? Good. Good, good, good. All right. Um, turn with me, if you will, to the book of John. I I really only have one scripture tonight, and I am the whole time during worship, both both services, the scripture just kept pounding in my head over and over and over and over and over again. And I, there there are some truths in God that are so good that it's really easy to just look at them, say, oh, that's good, and that's the beginning and end of our interaction with that truth. And that's, that's a bummer to me, because the, the truths that God has for us, they're not meant to be a nice little potted plant that we have on our shelf. It's meant to be set into our foundation, and its roots are meant to reach in and change the shape, change the way things lay, change the way things sit. And so I want to just uh, soak for a little bit on this truth. Um, and then we might, might do a few different things after that. But um, so to start, let's, let's go again together to this, to this scripture. So it's the book of John. We're going to start with chapter 16. We're going to go to verse 33. So this is a, a cool little moment here. Um, Jesus is talking with his disciples. This is very, very shortly before he's arrested and crucified. And he, this whole conversation that we're about to see the end of here is... Jesus, Jesus said something that was confusing, that didn't make sense to the disciples, and it freaked them out a little bit, and this is him basically trying to calm them down and really ultimately try to prepare them for him leaving them. Make sense? Cool. So he ends that conversation with John 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If if we could believe that that is true, we could experience our life probably 180 degrees different than we experience it on a daily basis. We could experience every moment of our life differently. We could view every single trial, every single challenge, every single moment of failure, every single time something just doesn't quite work out completely differently. If we actually believe that the things that God has said to us are so that we could have peace in him and that we can have that peace because even though there will be trouble, he's already conquered the world. He's already overcome the world. He's already made a perfect plan 
for every single thing that's going to come up in your life. And there's a difference between believing that God has good plans for me and walking my life out with the truth that God has good plans for me. You know? There's a difference between agreeing with something and believing it. You know? I can agree that this is a sturdy piece of furniture. Would you agree with that? No. (laughs) April doesn't think so. (laughs) But if I believe this is a sturdy piece of furniture, I can, I'll lean my weight on it. I will not like, you know, precariously or gingerly put my feet on. If I believe that this stage is sturdy, I don't think about, is this, is my foot going to go through? Is this going to break? I can, because if I didn't believe that this was a sturdy stage, I would be moving completely differently. I would be moving very gingerly. I'd be moving very carefully. So the other day, this is a bit of a side note, but it's funny. I was, uh, we, we have these kind of vaulted ceilings in our bedroom. And, you know, I'm not necessarily the best cleaning person in the entire world. I don't think I'm the absolute worst. But I may be second or third from the bottom. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, some dust had collected in these upper, you know, vaulted corners. And, you know, what are you going to do? Like get a trampoline to bounce up there and dust that? I don't know. <laughs> so... We have a vacuum. It's got like a telescoping pole and a little, you know, nozzle on the front. So I get that all set up. You know, I'm a decently tall guy. I'm 6'6", six, six, and still nothing. Can't reach it. And so uh, I have a little office in our bedroom. And so I got the office chair that's like got mesh on it, you know. <laughs> Don't worry, this ends okay. I'm still here and whole and healthy. But that was the only, that was, you know, it was that, a cardboard box, or trying to move our bed, and so I went with the office chair. And so I, you know, it's mesh in the middle, so I got to stand on, like, the little plastic ring situation that's around the edge. I situate my feet, and then I reach up with the vacuum, and the the tube is not long enough to reach. The vacuum falls over. So I'm like, okay, I get down, I lift up the vacuum with one hand. I'm wedged up with this here. I have the telescoping situation in my hand, and I'm lifting the whole thing up to vacuum. (laughs) Now, I didn't have very much, I did not believe that I was standing on a firm foundation. (laughs) So I was being very cautious, very careful, and very balanced. And so when I started pushing on the wall, you know, to get all the little stuff that was up there, my pushing started me rotating. And so holding the vacuum, holding the tube, I begin spinning around like a ballerina. <laughs> Just like so. <laughs> and I made a full 360 degrees and said, I think I should probably stop doing this. I have pressed my luck as far as it's going to go. I'm not going to do this anymore. Because <laughs> there was no real point in that story other than the, me knowing that I was not standing on a firm foundation completely changed the way that I acted completely determined the level I was able to commit, the level I was able to reach, how high I was able to reach, and my entire experience. Even when I started spinning, I stiffened up because I'm like, I, I didn't really like, I didn't stumble at all. I didn't really lose my balance at any point, but I'm spinning around and I know that this can go bad somehow at any moment because I don't have any faith in the stability of this chair, even though I made this choice. 
If we don't believe that the things that God says to us are true, it will determine the way that we walk out our, our life with him. And that will affect the quality of our experience. That will affect the, the, the effect that his promises have over us. Does that make sense? <sighs> this is another one, but I, it, it, I really want to hit this one. I remember I, this is a funny story, but this, this is just how it happened. It was the middle of the night. My room was in a garage when I was a teenager. My parents loved me, I promise. And <laughs> it was like a cool garage. My dad had put up some drywall between the garage door and my room, because again, they love me. And, but there was like about three feet of space there where they could still store stuff. And I don't remember exactly, oh, okay, so the, yeah, yeah, there was the, um, the box, the uh, fuse box was on the, in that section of the room. So power went out because I had a computer and a stereo and a TV and maybe I plugged all those into one thing. And so for some reason, the fuse blew. And so to get to the fuse, I had to, in pitch darkness in the middle of the night, you know, go into this room where all this stuff was stored. And I had been in there and I pretty much knew how it was and so I very gingerly, like, okay, I stepped over this. And then, okay, I remember that, that okay, his, my dad's skill saw is right there, so I don't want to kick that. So I just kind of do this, get over, and I made it all the way to the fuse box without hitting anything. I'm like, I'm awesome. This is great. This is so cool. I flip on the power. My dad had cleaned out the garage, and there was nothing in there whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Still impressive, though. Thank you. I didn't fall or anything. <laughs> but the point is, is I could have just walked right through that. That wouldn't have had to be a trial. That wouldn't have had to have been trouble. That wouldn't have had to have been an issue. I would have only needed to feel my way along the wall. But because I believed that there were obstacles in the way, because I believed that there was a problem, because I believed I had something over to come, I went very slowly, very gingerly, and it, it took me a minute, because I, I, again, I, I knew that there was a saw back there. I knew there was stuff that could, that could hurt me, even though there wasn't. Even in these very simple, practical ways, it's so easy to see how important what we believe about God, about our environment, about ourselves, and about other people is. How dramatically it can affect how we experience it, how we react to it. You ever have this moment, especially if, you, if, you're, if you're married or have ever had any kind of relationship with a human being, it, do you ever have this, that moment where you're expecting someone to be mad at something that you did or annoyed that you're late or whatever it is, and so you kind of walk in with your, like, with your fists up kind of thing, and you realize halfway through defending yourself that they weren't actually upset with you, but because you expected them to be upset with you, you experienced, <laughs> you, you, it was as if you experienced them being mad at you. Anyone ever have that happen before? I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So when my wife and I first moved here almost 10 years ago, and uh, I met my wife at the very end. We, we did three years of school of ministry in the uh, Reading School of Supernatural Ministry. 
And we met Steve and Lindy Hale there, and we ended up being part of the team of about 15 or so people that were sent from there to help start the church and school here. And we met at the end of our first year. We dated all through second year, got engaged halfway through our third year of school, and got married one or two weeks right after third year, which was not stressful at all. <laughs> and then three months later, we moved across the country to Georgia to help start this place. And so in the middle of this huge transition for, for me and for April, in the middle of me going after some stuff that had been my, my heart cry, to see a culture that's built around honor, that's built around revival, that's built around God's presence, recreated somewhere else, not a carbon copy, but a, a genetic transfer, a father-to-son relationship where one could take the same DNA, the same core values, and grow into its own unique expression of, the, of that DNA and core values. To see that happen from, from Bethel Redding over here to Bethel Atlanta, it was a dream of mine. And as in the middle of the very beginning of that dream coming true, about two weeks in, two or three weeks into our very first year of the School of Ministry, I had this, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. So I was just doing the laundry, and I just was, you know, having this little conversation in my head. And the conversation that I was having in my head was, hey, did, did Jesus know who he was? You know, I know that what, he got baptized by John the Baptist, and then there was the whole, you know, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, you know, situation. So obviously he knew he, who he was then. But did he know before that? Did he know that he was the Messiah? Did he know that he was the Son of God when he was, you know, wowing the, the teachers at the synagogue when he was a kid? Did he know as he was a teenager? Did he know when he was a little kid? You know, did, did he know? And, you know, the Bible isn't very clear on that point. But as I was thinking this, all of a sudden I heard the Holy Spirit speak, and, he, and I heard him say, yes, he did. He knew who he was because I told him who he was, the same way I tell you who you are. He believed me. And I felt so convicted by that statement. And it wasn't convicted in like, well, you're dumb. You know, it wasn't that. It was, I believe that everything that God says is true, but I don't always act like it. I don't always treat myself like everything he says about me is true. I don't always look at my life, hope for my life, dream for my life like everything that he says is true. In fact, when I really stop and think about it, I often lower my expectations based on my experience, rather than trying to match them to what God is saying. So why do we do that? Why do we do that? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, we, we, we could spend a long time talking about this, and I won't, I promise, because we don't want to be on those dangerous roads too late. Um, sometimes it's our disappointments. Sometimes we were taught not to expect very much from ourselves by parents. Sometimes we tried this, tried that, and tried this other thing, and it didn't work out, and it, it failed. Sometimes people hurt us. Sometimes we made decisions that hurt other people and hurt ourselves.
I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm going to be a little bit blunt with this, but I, I've seen so many people hold up their childhood, hold up a bad experience, hold up something that someone has done to them, big, small, or otherwise, and say, this, this is why I can't have this. This is why I can't have this experience with God. This is why this can't be true. This is why... And they maybe not maybe they don't say it that explicitly, but their their life becomes the, the conversation of their life mainly orbits around those issues. And I'm not trying to belittle your experience because I, I know that there are a, a wide variety of experiences here. But I know that no no matter how painful any experience or the sum of all the experiences in your life are. They're not worth trading the glory that God has for you. Getting justice for them is not worth trading the glory that God has for you today. And why is that important? Isn't God just? Yes, he is. But sometimes to receive heaven's justice, we have to set down our idea of justice. And that's scary because that means we have to believe that what God said is true. That the Lord is my protector, that the Lord is my judge, that the Lord is my defender. I'll go through the Psalms, all the story, all the all songs that David wrote about God, his defender, God, his, his warrior, God, his judge, God, his, his deliverer. To experience the truth of those, we often need to set down our idea of what that looks like. William James was this really uh, interesting um, Christian philosopher. Uh, it was around the late 1800s. And he wrote this article or an essay, I guess, that was really cool. Um, it's called The Will to Believe. And it's really good. It's written in late 1800s English, so, you know, it's a bit of a dry brand cracker. But, um, but it's nutritious. <laughs> um, and it's really cool because at that time, there was this kind of, and this is a debate that comes up in different ways uh, throughout, the, throughout the years, but there was this debate between, you know, science versus faith and things like that. And this is right around the time, like, Darwin's ideas of evolution and things like that were starting to kind of get, get a toehold in the, in the, you know, uh, general thought of the, of the world. And... Now, some people were going even further than what Darwin and some of, the, some of his guys were talking about, and they would say things as extreme as it is, it is morally wrong to believe anything that cannot empirically been, be proven. That, that it is wrong to believe in something that you can't see, smell, taste, touch. And in the, in the face of that kind of environment, William James wrote, the, wrote this uh, essay called will, The Will to Believe and the, uh, with a very, in my opinion, eloquent defense of the idea of the necessity of faith. And it was cool. He, he boiled it down to this, that there are some truths that you must first believe in to experience the truth of them. 
There are some things that are true that you must first believe that they are true before you can experience that they're true. And he used a great example of just a relationship. So take just a very basic, simple friendship. Someone walks up to you and says, hey, I like you. I would like to be your friend. Which, you know, that hasn't worked since the second grade, but that's okay. <laughs> Don't we wish it could be that simple? <laughs> um, and if, if our attitude, if our perspective is, well, you know, before I can believe that you like me and want to be my friend, I'm going to need you to prove that you like me and want to be my friend. Uh, you know, set aside the part where that's really awkward. Um, and it's, it'd be easy to see that in that environment, in that mindset, anything that that person does to show that they like you could easily look manipulative, could easily look like, oh, well, they're just trying to prove this thing that they're saying. They're just doing this because this, because that, because they want me to believe this, you know? It, it's really easy to see that, yeah? And he, in his, in his essay, argues that to actually experience the truth of this person likes me and wants to be my friend, I have to take the risk of believing that they like me and want to be my friend. Otherwise, I will not experience the benefits of them liking me and wanting to be my friend. Make sense? And I believe that so many aspects of God's nature, of his goodness, work this way. That we don't get to experience the benefit of them unless we first believe in them. And I want to be very, very clear. I do not believe that this is because God is hiding anything from us. I, I believe that he is giving us everything we ask for and more. Um... For those of you who are new, this might be fresh, but I, uh, for those of you who have been around, this is old hat, but I, I, I have seen the spirit since I was a little kid. I've, I've seen angels, demons, and other spiritual th things, um, see them with my eyes, not so very differently from the way that I'm seeing all of you right now. So if you're new, surprise. <laughs> um, and if you're old, you've heard that speech about 15 times by now. <laughs> um, and... Every single time I've ever prayed for someone to be healed, I see the healing show up. 100% of the time, it always shows up. Does, is every person I pray for healed? No. But every time, it shows up. Sometimes a healing angel shows up. Sometimes I see it leaking out of my own hands. Sometimes I, it's so thick in the room that it, you could just bump into it anywhere. But every single time, I see it. And sometimes I can see why it's not happening you know, I could, I could see uh, unforgiveness. I can see unbelief or whatever else. But sometimes I can't see why it's happening. Sometimes I'm feeling full of faith. They look like they're feeling full of faith. This angel is literally giving me the thumbs up. And we pray and, and nothing happens. And then other times it, I'm feeling super out of it. I'm super tired. I have a headache. The sermon went real bad. And this person comes up. It's like, oh, I've had back pain, back pain for 20 years. And, no, you know, medicine doesn't even affect it anymore. And I literally, you know, extend my hand with the internal faith of this is not happening. And the dude gets healed before my hand even touches him. I don't always understand why sometimes it happens and why it doesn't, but I do know that it shows up every time. But it's not just that. Every, every time we do this offering declaration, every single thing that we ask for shows up in the room. It arrives. Yes, it looks different every time. 
Does, does that mean that literally someone somewhere starts mailing you a check when you say checks in the mail every single time? No. <laughs> and all those checks come from Justin Stockton. <laughs> you can thank him for any check you've ever received. <laughs> no, but it means the answer to the cry of your heart is released. <laughs> When you ask for financial breakthrough, breakthrough, does that mean that a dump truck full of money is driving to your house right now? Maybe, but not necessarily. Sometimes a business idea lands in your lap. Sometimes a different method of doing the job that you have lands in your lap. Sometimes the grace for other people to see you for who you are in, your, in the company you work for is released. It's different every time, but every time it shows up. Every time. So like I said, I've been seeing the Spirit for as long as I can remember. I've been actively using this gift and growing in this gift since I was 12 years old. And the most painful thing that I see is, is not when I see someone under demonic oppression. It's not when I see someone with a deep spiritual or emotional wounding. It's, it's when I see the goodness of God so generously poured out among his people. And it just sits on the ground because we don't know how to pick it up, because we don't know how to receive it. We don't know how to embrace it. So my first, the first question that people ask me when I say that, especially when I talk about the money thing, is, well, how do I, how do I get that? <laughs> Dollar bills in their, sign, in their eyes. <laughs> I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God saw every single thing you would ever struggle with. He saw every single hurdle, every single stumble, every single pebble, even ones that you stepped over and never noticed. He saw every single one and made a perfect plan for every single one of them. But if we do not believe that that is true, we will miss some of them. Sometimes because we just don't know what it looks like. Sometimes because we're so used to holding on to our own perspective of things that we don't have the humility to set it down and look for his. Pride rarely looks like someone who is up here thinking all highly of themselves. Real destructive pride usually just looks like someone who is used to being good at something and has gotten comfortable not needing God there. It doesn't really, it sometimes does, but it usually doesn't look like someone who is literally, you know, sitting on top of the hill, literally thinking I got it all. Most people don't feel that way, even people who do have a lot. Real pride is the areas where we've forgotten that we desperately need God. And I don't say that to you know, smack you around. That's, I, I say you to raise your awareness so that we can receive stuff that he has that's better than what we currently have. <laughs> so, that we can, so that we can see and hear him more clearly, so that we can experience him more clearly.
I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I want to draw one more picture for you. You see, God, God isn't up there saying, well, as soon as you do this, this, and this, I'll, I'll give you this. No, he is, he is desperate for the moment that he can release the full measure of his, the bounty of his kingdom upon you. He is sitting in rapt anticipation for the moment that he can give you more. Jesus says it constantly to the disciples, constantly. He's saying, he, he says, even, actually earlier in this chapter even, he says this. And he says different vari- variations of this same concept of, this is much as I can tell you now, but I can, later I can tell you more. And he's not just teasing them. He's not, he's, not, he's not, you know, being mean. He's not that guy like I do sometimes where he you know, tells the whole story and then pauses and then, you know, goes to something else. No, he, he's saying, like, you literally are not yet equipped to receive what I have for you. But I am desperate for the moment that you are. The second that I... You know, this is, this is a simple metaphor, but I'm, there's so many, th- uh, my oldest son is seven years old right now. I have four kids and my, my oldest is seven. And there's so, I'm, and I talk, talk, talk to April about it constantly. There's so many things I get excited about. Like I just think about dri- teaching my son to drive a car. I think about, you know, doing this thing in sports. I think about him doing this, doing that, doing all this different stuff. I think of all these things I'm going to get to do with my son. And that, that does not mean I even consider for a second giving my son the keys to my car and saying, hey, just take it for a spin, buddy. (laughs) Because it's very easy for all of us to see how a seven-year-old is not prepared for that. You know, it's so, it's so obvious, it's so silly, it's so plain that it's obvious. It is that obvious to God when we are asking for something right now that we're not ready for. It's, it's so easy for us to see that, oh, that would be a, such a dangerous thing for me to give my son to my very slow minivan. Like, even that would be super dangerous, let alone like a Ferrari or something like that, you know. Golf cart, probably too much, <laughs> you know. Power wheels, we're getting close to being okay. <laughs> Segway, I don't know. Um, that's not safe for anybody. <laughs> um. It's that plain to God when we're not ready to receive some of the things that he has for us. I don't say that to be condescending towards you. I don't say that to, be, to, to put you down. I say that because if we want to receive everything we have that he has, then we have to be transformed. And if we want to be transformed by him, we have to trust what he says. We have to learn to believe what he says. And that's not, and I say learn because you have to learn. You will never stop learning how to trust what he says. That's not a, that's not a thing you, okay, I now trust God. No, he raises the stakes. because he want, Why does he raise the stakes of trust when he get, teaches you to trust more? Because he has more he wants to give you. Because he has so much more that he wants to give you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just uh, package this up real quick. Beginning of the Bible book of Genesis. We're in the garden. Adam and Eve, perfect, beautiful paradise. 
perfect, beautiful paradise includes the option of a poor choice, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve eat from this tree, and they become ashamed. What is God's first response to original sin? And then he came into the garden to walk with them in the cool of the day. We forget this part. We forget the order of how this happened sometimes. Because trust me, God knew what had happened. What is God's first response to original sin? Let's go and take a walk and talk about it. It was man that hid from God. His first response was, let me show up to meet you and talk with you. In the little Christian cartoons I watched when I was a little pastor's kid, you know, it was when this happened in the the little cartoon version of this Bible story, like the dark clouds came, the thunder. Adam, where are you? (laughs) Adam pops out of the bushes. (laughs) Here I am, Lord. (laughs) Anyway. Ooh, flashback. We're okay. Um, but, which, you know, that's great. That's just not how it's described in the Bible at all. It's when, he sh- this one, that beautiful, intimate passage of, and so he wa- showed up to walk with him in the cool of the day. So sin happens. There's a, there's a separation. There's, there's a, sin is the elephant in the room between man and God. The system of sacrifice is set up as a, as a way to take care of things in the meantime, if you want to look at it that way. Flash forward to Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross. The fulfillment of so many prophecies, the fulfillment of the stipulations that that keep sin as a wedge between man and God. What is the very first thing that happens the moment that Jesus dies on the cross? There is an earthquake, and the veil in the temple that separates the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence is, the place where his, his glory is so thick that it literally ki- would kill someone if they walked in. Because of this wedge of sin, because of this separation, crossing that gap without, with that thing in the way was so dramatic that it would actually make people drop dead. In fact, so much so that they had put bells around the bottom of their clothes and tied a rope around their ankle so that if they died, they'd have to drag them out which is like kind of eerie how practical they got about that situation. Oh, yeah, I know. Just first, the second guy walks in there, now I got two people. What are you going to do? <laughs> Sorry, dark humor. Anyway. <laughs> um, what is the very first thing the moment Jesus dies that happens? Boom, that veil is torn apart from top to bottom. The moment that Jesus dies, the moment that God is able to release his presence into the, into the invite man into his presence again, that is the first thing that he does. Instant, before Jesus even raises from the dead, like the moment that he can, boom, he does it. The second that him releasing the next level of glory will not harm someone, he releases it as if he were waiting for the moment. If we, if we have this perspective that God is hiding stuff from us, that he's annoyed at us, that he's looking down on us, that he's, he's disappointed with us, that he looks at this or that or these thoughts or this moment or this choice or all this stuff and it just is like increasingly getting more and more com- uncomfortable with who he decided to sit next to. If we have that perspective, we will experience it 
even though it is not happening. Just like when you think someone's mad at you and every glance, every look, every time they turn their head away, how fast they walk by you in the hall, screams, I'm mad at you, until you sit down and have a conversation and find out that they were, didn't even notice that thing that you thought you did. <laughs> you ever have that happen before? Oh, man, I made that joke, and it totally offended them. When I talked about those dead bodies in the temple and everything, and they were so offended, and now they won't make eye contact with me, you know. <laughs> it's called a callback. Um, So we have to decide to take the risk of believing that God is as good as he says he is. Otherwise, we will not experience it. And if we do not experience it, we will not be transformed into his likeness because we can hear the truth all day and believe it mentally, but we can't experience it until we're, taking the, until we're planting both feet firmly on it, trusting that it's not going to fall out from under us. All right, stand up real quick, if you would, with me. I know we went a little bit heavy for a Saturday night snowy time, but there's just so much good that he's just waiting, waiting for the opportunity to release, waiting for the moment that he can release more waiting for the moment that he can say, here's that new car, here's that, that, that business idea, here's that ministry, here's that healing breakthrough that you're looking for, all of that stuff. He is desperate for the moment. Sometimes we need to learn to give up our right to hold the injustices of our life in front of us and trust that heaven's justice is going to take care of them. Sometimes we have to lay down something that is working perfectly fine and set it on the ground, trusting that he has something better. Sometimes we have to lay down what our idea of our, of our perfect life is, our idea of what our dreams should look like, our idea of what a perfect life looks like, what a good life looks like, what a fun life looks like. We have to lay down our idea of what makes us feel satisfied in our day-to-day -day life, trusting that he will fulfill us in every single way. Because if we don't believe that, even if we, if we believe that consciously but aren't willing to take a risk on it, we'll be walking so gingerly through the tr those truths that we will miss that we could have just walked straight to our destination. All right, if you would just put your hand on your head, I'm going to pray for you real quick. Holy Spirit, first we just invite you to remind us of all the things that you've told us. It was one of my favorite promises that Jesus made. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit who will remind you of everything that I told you. Holy Spirit, remind us of the promises that you've made. Remind us of the things that you've told us. Remind us of the truth. Teach us how to believe in what you're saying more than what we know or understand. 
Teach us where we need to set some beliefs down, where we need to set some ideas down, where we need, may even need to set some needs or hopes down. And give us the courage to trust that the only reason you would ever ask us to set anything down is because you have something so much better. I break the lie that we experience trouble because we messed up. I break the lie that we experience trouble because we're going in the wrong direction. I break the lie that trouble is a sign of God's dissatisfaction with us. I break the lie that trouble is not, couldn't possibly be a part of God's perfect plan. And I release the truth that God has already overcome the world, that he has already made a perfect plan for every pebble, every pitfall, every trap, every snare, either ones that we create through our decisions and mindsets, ones that others have created through, through their unhealth, or ones that are just circumstantial to our environment, that you have made a perfect plan for every single one of those. I release that truth in Jesus' name along with just the courage to be led by you and the willingness to take a risk on you being as good as you say you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.